field, we're, we're constantly working to help people understand the value of education abroad, right? That's part of what we're, we're trying to do. We also want our students to be able to articulate their growth and their experiences. We talk about that all the time. We talk about how we need to advocate and promote our programs and initiatives. We obviously engage in research and we, are, we try to share the research we do with one another, right? And with other, you know, with the, with the field more broadly. All that work, I think, is really more effective if we can storytell, right? If we can make that sort of into compelling writing, into things that people will want to read or want to listen to. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I'm so excited about today's episode. Today, we'll be talking about different ways of being a scholar practitioner and how this connects to creativity and storytelling. We'll also be discussing ways that we can encourage and support our colleagues and team members to be scholar practitioners themselves, and to engage in creative work. I am pleased to be joined by my friend Giselda Bowden. Giselda is the Director of Global Initiatives at Rollins College in lovely Winter Park, Florida. Giselda is an absolute legend. She has been in her current role since 2017 and has led international education at Rollins since 2010. She holds a master's degree in English and creative writing from Binghamton University and a bachelor's degree in comparative literature from Brown University. I am so excited for today's conversation. You do not want to miss this episode. Giselda, welcome. Thank you for being here. You are so welcome. I'm so excited to be here. I can't believe I'm on this super cool podcast. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. Could you start by describing your current role at Rollins College to us? Of course, yes. I am, as you said, Director of Global Initiatives here, basically a dual role. I oversee our Office of International Programs, which is all of our outbound study abroad programs, and study away too. So we also support study away in domestic locations. And then I also work with a faculty member and a cross-campus committee to lead broader campus internationalization initiatives. So we do not have a senior international officer at Rollins. We sort of have more of a committee collaborative approach, and I am part of that collaborative approach as well. Fantastic. And so in order to give our listeners a bit of context before we dive into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, could you share a little bit about the education abroad ecosystem at Rollins? So Rollins is a small private liberal arts college, so we're lucky because study abroad is sort of baked into the culture here to some extent, although, right, student demographics change over the years, and you have to kind of keep up with those those changing needs and changing sort of landscapes. But global citizenship is part of the mission at Rollins. So Rollins definitely is deeply committed to global learning and has made education abroad a pretty big priority at the institution. So we do send about well, pre-COVID, about 70% of our undergraduates were going abroad at least once. Um, Post-COVID, I'm hesitant to say exactly where we're going to settle out. Um, Numbers have rebounded pretty well, but I feel like it's just not consistent yet. So I don't know exactly what those trends look like. And so let's get into it. So Giselda, what sparked your interest in creative writing and how have you integrated it into the various professional roles that you have had? I've always loved to read and write. Really, that goes all the way back to my childhood. I was also a very just super imaginative child. So 
um, loved stories, loved inventing worlds. I published my first story when I was in middle school in our local paper. It was it was a very melodramatic story about a girl whose parents were getting divorced. Mine are happily married, so I, I guess I was just feeling empathy for people <laughs> who were going through that. In terms of how I've integrated that into my professional roles, I think I've always thought of it as reading, writing, creative thinking, and that those are sort of three interrelated areas, if you will. And I think that for me, I'm just a lot more engaged and energized in my work when I find ways to incorporate elements of those things, right? They don't have to be all three at once. I'm not always engaged in all three at the same time, but finding ways to engage forms of reading, forms of writing, forms of creativity into my work. So that might be right things you would expect writing a conference article or a presentation, but it also might be just much more fluid, like leading reflections with students or designing thoughtful assignments or orientation activities or, you know, working on a program proposal where I'm using my writing skills and trying to make it compelling and interesting creative marketing materials. Although, frankly, the visuals are not my strong point. I'm better at the the textual piece. But right, any of those elements I think are, I think of as part of Right, this idea of, of writing and creative work. You know, so when we think about the field of, of international education, creative writing may not be what immediately comes to mind. But why is it important to talk about writing in our context? I think we tend to think of creative writing as fiction, right? Novels, poems, short stories. And I think we need to think about it more as if all writing is creative writing or all writing has the potential. Maybe that's a better way to put it. All writing has the potential to be creative writing. You know, in our field, we're, we're constantly working to help people understand the value of education abroad, right? That's part of what we're, we're trying to do. We also want our students to be able to articulate their growth and their experiences. We talk about that all the time. We talk about how we need to advocate and promote our programs and initiatives. Um, we obviously engage in research and we, are, which we try to share the research we do with one another, right? And with other, you know, with the, with the field more broadly. All that work, I think, is really more effective if we can storytell, right? If we can make that sort of into compelling writing, into things that people will want to read or want to listen to. You know, I mean, we're, we've been talking in the field a lot about, right, inclusivity and trying to make education abroad more accessible, more inclusive, we're doing outreach to underrepresented students. I think many of us, we know that it's a better sell, right, to be able to tell the story of a student with a similar identity, right, than to just kind of present facts or statistics or, you know, processes, right? So we know this, right? I think when we think about our work, we it is something that we're doing all the time. At heart, our field is, is education abroad or international education, right? It's not travel abroad, so it is actually right rooted in in learning and in teaching. I think we really benefit when we have diverse academic perspectives in our field because of this. You know, our our field is really cross and interdisciplinary, right? When we send students on study abroad programs, they're often going on programs that are cross and interdisciplinary. So I think it's great our fields become more professionalized. That's amazing. How important and wonderful. But as it has become more professionalized, it's also become more rooted in social sciences, just because a lot of the advanced degrees in international education are social science based. I think that's amazing. But if we only see through the social science lens, I think we miss opportunities. So 
you know, I think bringing in sort of the lens of arts and humanities of creative writing is another way of looking at our work. Also, I just think creative writing and creative work can be really energizing and healing. And I, you know, I think there's been some trauma in our field in the last few years. Just a bit, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, most of us got into this work because of experiences we had and stories we want to tell or want to be able to share or want to be able to create opportunities for students to write their own stories. So I think connecting with that can be really meaningful to sort of write help, help sort of justify our work and make us feel connected to why we're doing what we're doing. So you have me thinking, Giselda, that, you know, creative writing can really, uh, and, and storytelling, how we can leverage that in our field to really articulate the value of the work that we do to, to folks on our campus, to students, to our colleagues who may not understand it. So I'm really having, I'm really having a moment here processing what you said. So, so I think it's very insightful. And so, you know, storytelling and creative writing can go hand in hand. How have you engaged in storytelling as a way to contribute to the field or to support students at Rollins? One example might be in our office, we have created an online orientation for students who are going abroad. Probably many of us have done this. And we have a section that's about cultural learning and cultural content and kind of get students to say, start thinking a little bit about what is culture, what is that, and you know, what cultural influences do I have, and what are my values. We integrated into that orientation clips of study abroad alumni talking about critical cultural incidents that they encountered when they were abroad. And we did that so that our students would be able to see a couple little stories about what actually happens, what can happen to you abroad, and why this information about culture and identity and values actually matters, right? So I think that's a nice example, right, of just a simple way that we've thought about storytelling. You know, in my work in the field, I in all the, the things I do when I when I present at a conference or if I write something in the field, I always integrate personal stories. And I do that for a few different reasons. Um, I think stories provide entry points into the content, right? I think it's easier, I think, sometimes to get into something when you start with a personal story. I think it's also a way of kind of disarming your audience, right? If we, if we know a little bit about appreciative advising and the idea that you want to disarm people before you kind of start giving them advice or giving them structure, right? I think that that works in writing too. I also think the stories make the work, I hope, more compelling, right? So I really want to model the idea that my work, sort of like our students' experiences, is not confined just to the office, right? My learning and thinking go beyond just my daily right work. So I think when I integrate personal stories into a conference presentation, it helps show that, right? We, and we know that's true with our students, right? Obviously, uh, that our students, you know, have a holistic learning process. So same is true for us. You know, and, and in our field, we, we often talk about how to get students to go beyond talking about how the study abroad experience was amazing, right? That the A word that we talk yeah. about in our field. And so it's interesting, you know, how we can leverage some of these skills and processes for our students to help them be able to better articulate what they've experienced as well. And so Giselda, you know, for our our listeners who may want to hone their skills or try their hand at a writing project, what are some tips that you would have that they could use to get started or some resources you would recommend? Try to make it a practice. I really like, I like things being a practice. That means it's not perfect. It's not something you're trying to be amazing at. I'll use that dirty A word again. (laughs) But it's something that you are doing deliberately and you're doing regularly. 
that's it. That's all a practice is. And, and it can be quite minimal. Maybe it's just a few minutes a day. I know many of us probably eat our lunch at our desks because we're not always good at that work-life balance thing. So maybe read a short story or an article or a poem while you're eating your lunch. You know, it's a good maybe strategy. Finding an accountability partner, I think is really helpful, right? A, a writing group. I know Keisha Abraham and I are offering these sort of workshops and, and courses kind of focused on writing for international educators. So that's a community, but I know that the Global Leadership League does writing circles, right? I think there are other opportunities like that in our field where you can kind of get engaged with other people that are that are doing this work. There also just might be a colleague at your institution or organization who wants to right, help be accountable with you. You know, if you are someone who supervises people or oversees an area, I also think can you create scheduled time for this work for your team? We do a summer book club here at Rollins for my office. And the instructions are that everyone is able to do the reading for the book club during work time. That is what they are told to do. And then we get together about once or twice a month, kind of spread out through the summer to talk about the sections of the book. We only read sections at a time. I keep it very reasonable. And then we, we talk about the book typically over a glass of wine within the work hours, but at the end of the day which makes it a really nice, right, social experience. But we're also reading scholarship in the field or reading, you know, books or, or, or sort of pieces that are relevant to our work in some way and building that in. So I think especially if you have the ability to, to be someone who can set those terms, if you're able to, right, set those terms for the people who work for you. I do think the book Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way this is an old book, um, but it's great, has lots of great little tools and tips for kind of how to build creative thinking and creative activities into your life. So I do think that's a good resource as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, and you mentioned the, the workshops that you and, and Keisha Abraham have been offering. I'd love it if you could share a bit more about those. This has been a really recent project. It's been really exciting for, um, I think, both myself and Keisha. Last year, I realized when we first started going back to in-person conferences, you know, that everyone was really, really burned out, honestly, and also really craving connection and positive engagement. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, writing and creative work is such a great way to sort of productively do that. And I knew Keisha Abraham did art writing. I, I didn't know that much about her. I'd worked with her a little bit and I reached out to her and it turned out that she had been having very, very similar thoughts. And we thought, well, this is amazing. Like, let's collaborate on something. So we offered a virtual writing class in the fall. And then we're right now offering a second sequence of the class. We also did a one day virtual workshop. And then we're um, in the early stages of, we hope, um, planning an a in-person workshop in conjunction with one of the conferences next year. I can't say which yet because it's not official, but we're hoping that we can partner with an organization to kind of add it on as a, as a one-day opportunity. And we just think it's a really incredible way for people to build writing skills, to connect with people in a really different way, right? It doesn't always just have to be attending a conference session, right? Sort of being able to connect in a different way with people in the field, to get your brain, right? There's all this research about how when you get your brain into different spaces, right? We use different parts of your brain. It, it really opens up new ideas, right? And new ways of thinking. So um, we're really excited about it. You heard it here first, folks. Something exciting on the horizon for next year. Yes. And and for our listeners or something who might be interested in, in getting more information about this, like, is there, is there, where should they look? How can, how can they find more? How can yes. they learn more? 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, if you um, follow either me or Keisha Abraham on LinkedIn, we're always posting all the information about it. There's also a website too. And of course, I do not off the top of my head know the exact URL. It's, uh, it's Keisha. It's a- on Keisha Abraham's website. So if you Google Keisha Abraham, you'll pull it up and it's under her website. Great. You know, as we think about the phrase scholar practitioner, there are many folks that come to mind who might say, you know, this topic is not for me. I'm not a scholar practitioner. But help us unpack this a little bit. Who belongs when it comes to the creative writing space? And how can folks find their niche? I do think people often feel, well, scholar, I'm not a scholar, right? Or frankly, I'm not a writer, right? (laughs) I think people also say that. Well, I'm not a creative writer. I'm not a writer. That's not me. But I think we tend to think of scholar and we think of faculty member with a degree, advanced degree who's using very academic language. I think you need to expand the definition, right? I think we should expand the definition of scholar. You know, we're all developing as professionals when we attend a webinar, when we listen to a podcast, when we write, read an article in our field. That's what scholars do to keep learning. So all of us, every time we do that, are engaging in the same thing that scholars, quote unquote, do, right, when they're looking to grow. You know, we think about what our students are learning and how we can help them learn and how we can maybe help them learn better and what can we do. We think about best practices and how to apply those best practices. Those are all things that, again, scholars do just in a slightly different form, right? So I think we tend to think of our work as if it's somehow separate from scholarship. I don't necessarily think that it actually is. All of our jobs are connected to learning and teaching. We're all connected. We're all in that space. I think we're all scholars at some level. Creative writing and storytelling and creative write, sort of creative work more generally, I think, helps us expand that definition of scholar-practitioner. Scholarship doesn't write. I think we, we think about scholarship and we think, okay, I have to do a literature review and then I have to do a big study with institutional research board and then I have to analyze all my data in statistically sound ways and like that's what scholarship is. But that's just one kind. That's great scholarship, but that's one kind of scholarship. You know, when you write a creative essay or a short story or if you design new graphics, right, those are forms of scholarship, too. And if, if a faculty member were doing that, probably wouldn't question it, right? If it was art faculty or English faculty, we'd be like, oh, right, of course, that's part of their scholarship, right? But we somehow think that's not part of scholarship. If it's, if it's us doing it, it doesn't make any sense. I sort of argue that I think it's really important for us to own our role as scholars, because as I said before, it's education abroad, it's international education, right? We aren't. We aren't travel agents, and and we we know we never we don't want to be seen that way, right? <laughs> so I think we should really try to empower each other to to right own this idea of sort of being at right being a scholar practitioner. I do also I will do a shout out to um, Tony Ogden and Bernhard Streitweiser's book um, International Higher Education Scholar Practitioners. Again, I think people might dismiss that book because they think, well, that's not about me. But the essays in that book, I think, make a really strong case for how oh no, this is about you. <laughs> You know, being a scholar practitioner is important to you and to, and to many of the folks listening, listening to us today. Uh, and now I'm going to flip things around on you a little bit, Giselda, and ask you to share a little bit about your own story. How has your identity as a scholar practitioner evolved over time? As you said in the intro, so I, I studied comparative literature as an undergraduate, and I did a lot of creative writing. Uh, my master's degree is in English literature and creative writing. So I think For myself, I've always sort of seen this connection between the academic work and the creative work, right? So that's always, as a student, that was certainly what I I did. 
when I first started working in education abroad, I think it's fair to say that practitioner kind of became front and center for a while, right? You're, you're learning the job, you're, you're learning how to do this, you're pretty preoccupied with, with the practice. But I do think right from the start, I tried to really take any opportunity I, I could get to learn about the field, right? To learn about best practices. And, and of course, right, being someone new in the field, you don't get as many of those opportunities, but I just tried to look for them and tried to kind of, right, if, if something came my way, I definitely tried to, to jump on it. I think my sense as of myself as scholar practitioner emerged a lot more strongly as I became more involved in the field and, and was in a position then to be able to maybe serve in a volunteer role, right, or, or present at a conference. I also think in my, in my own sort of daily work, we just started focusing more on student learning and on applying right best practices that we were learning to our own work, which again, I think is a form of scholarship, sort of taking the things you're learning and applying them back into your work. That's essentially like the scientific method, <laughs> right? Sort of taking something, testing it, seeing if it works, refining it, doing it again. A couple years ago, about three years ago now, I started teaching classes at Rollins, which has been a really great opportunity. I obviously just do that part-time because I have a full-time job as well. But that's created, I think, a really interesting new level to my sense of scholar-practitioner. Right now, I feel like I am also have this sort of active teacher piece, which has been really, really great sort of way to rethink that. And then, and then like I said, now this new piece with Keisha Abraham has kind of shifted my sense of identity even further because it's allowed me, honestly, to, to refocus a bit on my creative writing. So it's, it's sort of put that back in the, the center of my life, which has been really interesting. Jennifer Malarick at Arizona State University, she recently used the term scholar storyteller, which I also like. And she was thinking about how she could translate her research right into, into stories in order to make it right, more interesting and compelling. I really like that idea. So, you know, maybe now I'm scholar, practitioner, storyteller. I like that. Yeah, scholar, storyteller. Yeah. Uh, That's great. So our work in international education can be incredibly fulfilling. You know, the work that we do truly changes lives. That said, though, you know, the day-to-day of being an international education professional doesn't stop. You know, the emails, the calls, the, the all of the things that consume our, our days in this world, right? And so I would love to hear your advice on how you carve out time for this important kind of work when the day-to-day can be so consuming. I'm going to be a little bit mean here because I think we tend to use that as an excuse for a lot of things. And, and I don't mean that we aren't busy because I, I know everyone's really busy. So I'm not, I'm not questioning the busyness, right? I, I think I think there are a lot of demands on people in our field. And I think the demands have actually increased right after the the pandemic. The reason I say it's an excuse, I think, is really for two reasons. One is that I think we we do tend to make time for what we think is really important. I think I think all of us probably do in some way, shape or form. We're carving out time for what we what we believe is really sort of critical I also just think that we struggle a lot against the culture of busyness, right? And I, I mean, I know on my campus, anytime you ask someone how they're doing, ever, anytime, the answer is, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so stressed. And I think you can get really caught in that and sort of forget that there is a different way of working, right? There is maybe a way to work that would allow for more balance or allow for more time. So I guess I would argue that this is sort of a mindset change, <laughs> maybe rather than a trying to like add more hours to the day or, or, you know, getting rid of tasks, but trying to kind of think about 
think about how you can center this work or how you can make this work something that is that is important enough to kind of be part of your daily work. You know, and it might be something as simple as like, maybe there's one little efficiency you could make in your work that would free up 30 minutes a week, even something as short as that. And you're just like, okay, this is like the 30 minutes that I've managed to free up because I did this one little change in this system or this process. And and that's the time that I'm going to spend. That's great. That's a win, right? I think we also, almost all of us in this field tend to take on extra responsibilities. I think a lot of us just are passionate about the work. And so we tend to say yes to extra things. So I I think also if you're someone who does that, and I'm not saying, you know, everyone is, but it certainly seems like a lot of us are, maybe take a scan at what you've said yes to and, and sort of think, okay, do I need to be doing all these extra things? Is there maybe one thing that I could take off my plate in order to try to kind of make room for this work? I'm certainly guilty of that myself. It's it's saying yes too often. So I love what you're saying right now. (laughs) You know, there's no denying that that words have power. How have you seen creative writing make a difference? Yeah, I have a small answer and a big answer for you on this one, Zach. My small answer is that I one of the classes I teach um, is a, a like a half class on global citizenship we do actually read um, several creative pieces in this class. And I think that the, the, the pieces that we read, the more creative pieces that we read are really impactful for the students. And I think provide really, really good grounding for discussion um, in some ways better than we also read some more right sort of academic pieces. And I think those are great too, but I think the creative pieces in some ways are just more, more accessible for the students an example is we, we read this great essay by Rao Tehal, who's actually a, a chef and sort of food critic. And it's about curry. And it, pro, it sort of combines a, a very, very personal reflection on kind of microaggressions that she's experienced as a South Asian American with also history of the word and the dish curry. And I think because the piece is, is it's personal and creative, it's really relatable. And it still gets students thinking about judgment, cultural judgments, the complexities of culture, the ways you might judge without realizing, right? So the our essay talks about how curry is like a made up term, which until I read this piece, I didn't really realize. Most of my students have never thought about how food becomes reappropriated in these complicated ways. So I think that's my small answer is that, right, just a, a piece of writing can, I think, jumpstart discussion on, around really complex ideas and themes. My large answer is that right, when I look at the state of the world today, I'm a little bit worried, maybe in some ways, right? I try to be an optimistic person. I'm a social constructivist, which basically means that I believe that we have constructed our society, right? That we've sort of built it and we have the potential to rebuild it, right? To make it better. That's a very hopeful position. But that type, right? Social and cultural change is, is slow and difficult, And I think art can help that kind of social and cultural change, right? I think it has a lot of positive um, power. I might use the example, I always always use this example with students actually talking about cultural change is is attitudes towards LGBTQ plus in the United States. You know, when I was in high school, there was not a single student who was openly gay, not a single one. Um, And I would say that probably nowadays, that's very rare. I mean, there might be high schools where you really can't, you know, not a single student would feel comfortable coming, you know, out as openly gay. But I would say that's probably pretty rare these days. And that's a fast cultural change. That's about 25 years. 
And I, I, you know, this is one of those things you can't test for. It's very hard to do research on big scale cultural change, right? But the, the increased prevalence of LGBTQ people in especially television and movies, I think is part of that cultural shift, right? Obviously, journey's not done here, right? This isn't a problem we've solved completely. But I think the media and particularly the storytelling through movies and shows, right, worked in tandem with, obviously, there was also a lot of intentional activism happening and legal fights and, right, but, but the storytelling, I think, was part of that and part of that cultural change. You know, many of us who like to write also like to read. I know I do. What is a memorable book or other piece of writing you would like to recommend to our colleagues who are listening today? Well, first of all, I'm a big believer in reading anything you like and not feeling guilty about it. So if mysteries are your thing or romance novels or thrillers, go to town and enjoy it and do not feel guilty. I read a lot of different genres. Lessons in Chemistry is the best book I think I read so far this year, which is um, a fun and funny sort of send up of gender roles and feminism. I love everything by Haruki Murakami. Kafka on on the Shore is probably my favorite of his. Barbara Kingsolver, her newest novel just won the Pulitzer. I haven't read it yet. I'm like dying to read it. Nonfiction. I know some people read nonfiction. Um, a couple hopeful. I read some not so hopeful nonfiction, but a couple hopeful nonfiction books I've read recently. Um, Donut Economics, which argues for like a sustainable economic path forward. Also, the book Our Towns is a journalist who went to all these small towns across the U.S. and saw actual cross political party like cooperation and effective positive change on this small scale which was really heartening (laughs) so yeah those are a few recommendations those are great yeah thank you Uh, we could all use a little more collaboration across the aisle in this country what about you Giselda what what is your proudest moment as a writer yeah I don't think I have one this is this is an interesting question obviously it's really exciting when you get published and I've had my short fiction published I've also had write nonfiction that I've written in the field published and and both are equally exciting. But honestly, I also journal for myself. And I also just love the moments when I'm on my balcony with a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning, and I'm just writing for myself. And I think, again, right, the person I am as a professional and the person I am as a person are not separate things. So that journal might be for me personally, but I do think it creates right space. I write about work sometimes. Sometimes I even come up with interesting ideas while I'm journaling because I am a whole person, <laughs> right? And those zones are not separate. Absolutely. We begin to wrap up here. I just have a few more questions for you. And so what is something about creative writing that might surprise our listeners to learn and that you'd like us to take away? Just that you don't need to be a creative writer to do creative writing. You don't need to be working on a novel or be a poet. You can do the work you already are doing and just find ways to infuse creative thinking and writing into that work. All writing can be creative writing. All write-up can be creative writing. I love that. And so I just have one more question for you, Ms. Bowden. As you think about studying abroad in 2023, what makes you hopeful? I think the thing that makes me most hopeful is 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 maybe more just about the students that I've been seeing and working with. And I just feel like even the ones that may not have been as exposed yet to different cultures or perspectives, or maybe they haven't reflected as much yet on their own identity or values, right? Some of our students are far along that line and others are very new to that. But I feel like they're so 
they're so, they seem so open to me. Like they actually do seem like they really want to learn and that they, and that they want to be open-minded, right? They they may not always be good at it. I mean, right. None of us are always good at it, but they want, they want to be open-minded. They want to be culturally competent, right? They, they see that as something that is a desirable thing, right? And I think I find that really, really heartening. So we still have to help them get there, but I'm so excited by the fact that they want to, right? They want to get there. And that's partly why they're choosing to study abroad, right? Well, I can't imagine a better place to end it than right there. Giselda uh, Bowden, thank you so much for being here. I've learned, I've learned a ton today. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. I'm, it's just really been a blast chatting with you, Zach. Absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics on international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Kelchner and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together, people.